You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. You're very welcome to my first series of Senior Times podcasts. Now, it's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and by the quality of Irish women writers. On this podcast, my guest is Emily Horican. Emily, you're welcome to the podcast. And the way we normally begin is by asking the, the writer to pick a piece of their writing. And you've taken a piece from your new novel, The Glorious Guinness Girls, which I really enjoyed. I'm dying to have a conversation with you about it. Will you tell us about the piece and then I'll have a little read of it? Yes, absolutely. So The Glorious Guinness Girls is a novel and it is dealing with the lives of the three daughters of Ernest Guinness, who were Eileen, Maureen and Una Guinness. And the novel starts in 1918 and it runs through until the end of the 1920s. And in this particular section, the narrator of the novel, whose name is Fliss, who is the daughter of a very impoverished Anglo-Irish family whose father has died in the First World War. She has been sent to live with the Guinness girls, who are roughly the same age as her. She's 11 years old when she arrives to their house in Glenmaroon, which was in the north part of Dublin, near Castleknock. So she has literally just arrived into this house. She hardly knows where she is. She has met these three girls, Eileen, Maureen and Una, who are, you know, they're kind of, her age, more or less, they're eight, they're 11, and they're 14. And she has just been introduced to them. She doesn't really know where she is. She doesn't really know what's going on. She's confused and probably a little bit frightened as an 11-year-old away from home would be. And so the extract deals with her first few hours in this house with them. We climbed to an attic space that was so narrow we couldn't walk abreast and dark because there were only a very few small windows set high up in the roof. We walked to the very end where the creature opened a door into a dingy little room with an iron bed and a mattress with bare ticking and a misshaped bolster thrown across it. The walls were discoloured, mottled, like flesh on a cold day, and the air was stuffy. The only window was set high up where I couldn't reach it, and by the cobwebs around it, it didn't seem to have been opened in the longest while. Am I to sleep here then? I asked, trying to keep my voice steady. The creature stood and stared at me, no longer cackling, but slouched against the doorframe. I wished she would go away and opened my mouth to tell her so, when suddenly, in the open doorway, like sunlight, Una appeared, breathless from her climb. Oh, please don't cry, she said, face screwed up in sympathy. Don't cry, dear. But I couldn't stop. How could you, she said then, furiously rounding on the creature beside her in the doorway. Of all the mean things. The creature rubbed hard at one of her teeth and said in quite a different voice, it was only a joke. Not much of a joke, I think. Una said, gesturing towards me with a small white hand. Honestly, Maureen. Do you know what happens there for me is that Fliss or Felicity, the impoverished 
child who's come to live with him, she's got quite a nice welcome from the parents in the house and the aunts. And then this, and she is just so traumatized by it. And it's a practical joke. I I'm a, I had huge sympathy for her, I have to say, <laughs> right from the start. <laughs> well, firstly, you read it really, really well. It was beautifully read. Um, yes, exactly. She's had the formal introduction. She's had tea in the drawing room with the girl's mother, Chloe, and their aunt, uh, Gunny, who runs the house, basically. And the girls have politely said, how do you do? And not very much more. And then she was being shown up to her bedroom by Gunny. And the next thing, Maureen appears dressed like a kind of a very slatternly maidservant and plays this practical joke on her, takes her up to the attics and pretends that that's where she's going to sleep. And then Una comes and kind of rescues her. And, I mean, Maureen Guinness was famous for her practical jokes. Throughout her life, she was the person who used to put bowls of vomit or fake vomit beside her guests' beds in their bedrooms when they came to stay with her. She was always dressing up as a slatternly maid and playing one prank or another right throughout her life into her 80s. This was what she liked to do. So in that section, she's all of 11, but she's, you know, she's starting as she means to go on. It shows a, a, a kind of a cruel streak in um, Maureen, doesn't it? It does. And Maureen had a reputation for being the cruelest of the three, for being the most cutting, for being the most snobbish. She had a lifelong obsession with royalty, particularly with the Queen Mother. Um, and for being, in later life, a slightly monstrous creature. Maureen Guinness was the model for Dame Edna Average, Barry Humphreys. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Barry Humphreys' creation of Dame Edna Average was hugely modelled on Maureen Guinness. And there are so many stories of her delivering nasty put-downs and behaving in a cold and cruel way to, you know, anyone who she felt was slightly beneath her, who was pretty much everybody, basically she felt was slightly beneath her. But I was really interested in writing this. So as I said, it's, it's a novel. So these are my interpretations of these real people. So the Guinness girls were obviously real people. And the things that happened to them in the book are by and large true events of their lives. But within that, I have created characters from the available information. And I was really interested in who is that monstrous woman when she's a child? Nobody's born monstrous. Nobody is monstrous at the age of 11, which is the age that she is in that extract. So where does that person come from? So at that age, I'm showing this version of Maureen who loves the practical jokes that are slightly, that is a cruel practical joke to play on somebody who is new to your house, very uncertain, very young, very alone. But at the same time, you can almost see how somebody's kind of slightly inappropriate sense of humour would cause them not to quite realise that it's a cruel joke. She's so caught up in her own desire to do something that she thinks is funny that she doesn't actually quite see that it is also cruel. It takes Una to show her that. Yeah, she just lacks empathy, I suppose. Mm. It's, it's a fascinating way in which you have, I suppose, gone on this journey of the early years, because it is their early years, um, of these three sisters. And, you know, Emily, it's a, it's a glamorous world. Um, I loved the descriptions of the drawing rooms, of the bedrooms. I mean, I have a fascination with all of that as well. Is that something that really interests you? Oh, hugely. Really? Absolutely hugely. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I don't know why, but I'm obsessed with houses. I'm obsessed with being able to visualise where people are. 
I also mm. think that I think houses have personalities just as people do. For me, I adore that kind of detail in books. I really love the feeling that you can absolutely feel where the action is taking place. And I also love, I think if you're going to write something set in the past, it has to be immersive. You have to be able to feel that you are no longer in the world in which we live, mm -hmm, the modern mm -hmm. world, that you are now in a world that no longer exists and you have to be able to, because you're not familiar with it, we don't know what that looks like because that's not where we live. So the writer needs to put in enough detail that you really do go, okay, I am now in 1918. I am now in this amazing Anglo-Irish house in 1920, 1921. I am now in London in 1922. So yeah, I do. I adore all of that. I mean, all of the kind of, you know, that side of the research I just thought was so interesting. Well, you have the, the, the glamorous life. You've got the financial life. You've got the crash. You've got fascism. You've got the war of independence running alongside it. Because of all those different elements, um, did it take a lot longer to, to write and to craft than, um, as you say, a contemporary novel? It, it did, yes, and the background research. So one of the things that interested me so much about The Three Guinness Girls is that their lives basically span the whole of the 20th century. So they were born, Eileen is the eldest. She was born in 1904. She lived right through till 1999. Mm. And that is the whole of the 20th century. So they had their own individual, very glamorous and quite fascinating lives going on. But then at the same time, all the major events of the 20th century are happening around them. And they have a vantage point on those events, which is, I found really interesting, for example, the War of Independence here. So they are not fighting that war, obviously, mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. dint of their age, their sex, but also their class. They're not fighting for Irish independence. They're not even sympathetic mm -hmm. to the cause of Irish independence. And yet they were physically able to watch the events unfolding. There's an amazing story that really kind of triggered my imagination of them standing in their house in Glenmaroon looking. So in June 1922, when the forecourts was burnt out, they stood and they could see the smoke rising from the forecourts, from their house in Castlenock. They actually watched that happening. They were, you know, 14, 15, 16 at the time. So obviously they were no part of it. They didn't even really know very much about it. And yet they were there watching it. And I suppose their biggest concern was, would it uh, um, have an effect on the, the kind of the garden party that they were planning? Exactly. Would yes. <laughs> How will this civil world. war, this yeah. civil war playing out, how is it going to affect yeah. our social lives? Exactly. Yeah. Because, of course, like girls at that time and of that class, their social life was their primary purpose. The mm -hmm. primary reason for their existence was their social life, which is, A, incredibly depressing, and B, also in a weird way entertaining and fascinating and the idea that you sort of look at that and go well how does somebody within that constraint lead a life lead any kind of how do you how are you a woman when you know your primary purpose is to get married to somebody very suitable we'll talk some more about uh, the, this actual novel in a little while but i'd like to ask you about yourself um you you were born in Belfast, am I right? I was, yeah. And you, but you spent a lot of time in Brussels. Yes. Now, what um, was that like? 
So I loved Brussels. I was born in Belfast. My dad was working for RTE there. He was the Northern Correspondent. So that was the early 70s. Um, so he was reporting back daily and nightly on the kind the of troubles. troubles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. And then we left Belfast and we moved to Dublin for a couple of years. And then when I was six, we moved out to Brussels. Ah. So I did all my schooling practically in Brussels. I did one year here when I was about 10 and then back over to Brussels again. And I loved it and I still love Brussels. And every time I go, which I do, I mean, when it's in a non-COVID year, I tend to go twice a year generally. Um, and I just love it. I love everything about it. I love what do you smell. love about it? I love the smell of the city. I love the houses, the architecture. It just, I guess it's my childhood. I don't see it in any independent kind of way at all. It's the familiarity of it. And it's the instant connection because I don't live there. I guess it's a more dramatic return to the landscape of childhood, Mm -hmm. even though the city has changed, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I suppose, you know, it's a way of life that I grew up with and that I really enjoy. It's still a slightly different way of life to here. Like you will not get a chemist open in Brussels after midday on a Saturday. And you certainly don't get shops open on Sundays in the way they are here. You know, it just is, it has a different flavor and a different feel. And I love it, I really do. I love the memories and I love the reality. When you were growing up in Brussels, um, was there a feeling that this is the the, the epicenter, that there's an essence of the, the, the Europeanism about the place? I guess so. I'd say like most things, it's more in retrospect that I see it. At the time, everybody just, like everybody's childhood feels normal. The circumstances of your life are normal and you just get on with it. In retrospect, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. I mean, I, you know, my, like my dad was a very, very sociable person who loved he loved people. He loved having people around. We lived quite close to the commission. So, I mean, physically, it felt like the epicenter. There were an awful lot of Irish journalists who would come to the house, politicians. It just felt like there were always people in and out of the house. And all of those people had to do with Europe in some shape or form. Um, And it was really, I mean, it was lovely. It was really great. And I think I grew up feeling very much European and also very much Irish, if that isn't a contradiction. We were, I was always coming back to Ireland to study. It was always home. And then Brussels was also, the house was home, but the country wasn't, whereas here we had no house to be home, but the country was home, if that makes sense. Uh, you've described yourself as a Eurobrat. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I like to think that I am no longer a Eurobrat, that I have very much grown out of that. But definitely when I, by the time I finished school there, so that was, I finished school when I was 17 and I came over here to UCD and for all that Ireland was home and I was coming home to go to college, it felt very, very, very strange for the first couple of years. Nobody that I met or very, very many people who I met in UCD didn't seem to be as enthusiastic about the idea of me being Irish as I was. There was lots of, you know, where are you from? Where'd you get your accent? You're not Irish. Um, 
And I did at that stage, I probably was quite, you know, yeah. I, I mean, Eurobrat is the shorthand. You know, I had lots of French and Italian friends and lots of German friends. And we all spoke in at least two or three different languages. I sound like such a show off now. I don't speak those languages at all well <laughs> anymore. Um, but it was just, you know, that's what my outlook on life was by dint of that being the place where I grew up and the European school was where I did all my schooling. So, yeah, quite Eurobratty. Mm-hmm. But then very much, I mean, that first year in UCD was difficult enough and it didn't feel very familiar. And I wasn't entirely sure that I would stay. There was a part of me that was thinking, you know, I may go back to Brussels. I may study in a Belgian university. And then by Easter time, I was totally committed. I had then met friends who are still my friends and had entirely fallen in love with the idea of properly being Irish and staying here long enough to feel that that's what I was. Was journalism always a path that you wanted to walk? It was always a path I wanted to walk. My dad was an amazing journalist. He was a spectacularly brilliant journalist. Um, And I loved... I could see that when he talked about his years as a journalist in the north of Ireland, his passion for it and his belief in the interesting aspect, but also in the useful, important aspect of the job that he had done was really persuasive for me. Also, I saw all his friends, as I say, the many journalists who came to visit, and they always seemed to be having a really brilliant time. And that was very persuasive. They seemed Mm. to have huge amounts of fun, and I loved that. What was the transition like from journalism to writing novels? Reading was what was the big thing for me. Um, Absolutely, like, and still am. It is my favourite thing to do, beyond anything, and I don't think that will ever change. Every single moment of my life that has been difficult has been made better by reading and mm. um, by the act of reading and by the remembrance of things that I've read. I am such a believer that, you know, you can take comfort from something that you have read that has shown you some aspect of life or character or even fiction. Like. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100%. I mean, you know, how do we understand the world? For me, it's definitely through what I read mm-hmm. um, and hugely through fiction because I'm a big, big reader of fiction. So it was always, it was reading. And then when I started writing and telling other people's stories and doing interviews, and you know, because, you know, that's what you do as well. What can you, what part of this person's story can you tell? How well can you tell it? How faithfully can you tell it? How much can you make it kind of, you know, resonate for somebody reading it? And then from there to kind of going, well, you know, maybe I could do those things and I could make up my own characters and tell their stories and see how that goes. I mean, it's daunting to go from a 2,000 word article to, you know, an 80,000 word book. But that's just process. You know, that's just kind of, Committing to the idea. But going from fact to fiction is a huge leap, isn't it? Because you are going into this very well-developed creative side of your brain. Well, I mean, it's it's better developed now. It's not. (laughs) Like, I wouldn't say it was so well-developed when I started. Because as a journalist, as you know, you spend your whole life going 
is this accurate? Mm -hmm. Am I 100% sure that this is exactly what happened, when it happened, what that person said? And then to throw all that training out and go, now I'm just going to make it all up. So there's huge, <laughs> there's huge freedom to that. But there's also, without wanting to sound like a complete idiot, there's an existential fear. You kind of go, well, there are no borders here. I could literally write anything. And that's a little bit daunting for a while. You're kind of like, well, you know, why am I writing this and not something different? And the idea of picking your path through a story that you have invented and that only you will say or can say where it goes. That took a while of getting used to, but I mean, interesting, very interesting. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. The very first novel I think that you wrote was called The Privileged, am I right? Yes, that's right. And it's also, it's, you know, it has echoes in a more modern setting of the the life of the the Guinness girls. So right. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah, you're absolutely right. I also think you're the first person who's pointed that out. You're so right, it does. Um, I am, sisters fascinate me, that dynamic between sisters that is also then the dynamic sometimes between very close female friends. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two sisters who are, they are the joys of my life. They are the greatest people in it. And I made the three, so obviously the three Guinness girls are sisters. The three girls in The Privilege, I made all of them only children. And I gave them a relationship that was sisterly. And I really did. I just think that that point of being supportive, competitive, knowing somebody almost as well as you know yourself, and yet still being able to be surprised by them, being jealous 
of them and jealous for them at the same time. You want the best for them. And then when the best happens, you have to recalibrate that within your own life and what it means for you. You know, it's just, it is one of the, for me, as I say, it's one of the most fascinating of all relationships and for me one that has been an incredible source of strength in mm -hmm. my life mm -hmm. I still turn to my sisters for everything that goes wrong every kind of advice or you know kind of bit of cheering up or anything that I need they do that and I just wanted to examine it on the page and you know see where you might be able to go with it mm -hmm. so very definitely the three girls in The Privileged have a sisterly relationship and they are quite, you know, the dynamic is not unlike the Guinness girls. Uh -huh. And also, I suppose the lifestyle is not unlike the, the lifestyle of the Guinness girls and that they are very privileged very and they were true. very rich. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and again, I think I am interested in this idea of being rich, being privileged and how much happiness that brings or, or doesn't more to the bring point, indeed doesn't bring and that probably goes back to i mean certainly growing up in brussels we would have been in a kind of you know we would have known an awful lot of people who had an awful lot of privilege and definitely we were also in that category but i feel that we were different there were six of us and you know i certainly never i felt that we were very privileged but I never felt that we were rich. And in comparison with the people that we knew, we certainly weren't, you know. Um, but lots of them would have been both rich and very privileged. And, and spoiled. In ways, yeah, spoiled with stuff and yeah. less spoiled or less minded in terms of care yeah. and parental attention because their parents were having a wonderful time in Brussels, living it up. I'm sure it was incredible fun, but not necessarily wanting to spend a lot of their free time in a domestic sphere. Mm -hmm. Whereas my mother was amazing for that. Her primary role was 100% her children. Mm -hmm. And we never felt that we were not the center of her universe, uh, which is an amazing thing. There is no way her social life was more interesting to her than we were. Mm -hmm. And that is a wonderful thing. Um, but a lot of my friends were not that. They didn't see their parents very much. They had an enormous amount. They had fantastic, amazing houses. They had cars on their 18th birthday. They had endless holidays and money and all of this stuff. And were they the better for it? No, they really weren't. And lots of them were unhappy. And some of those stories ended in very unhappy ways. Mm -hmm. And all of that kind of, you know, played into my interest in it. You can have everything where you can look like you have everything and it can feel like you have, you know, almost nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think that that, that that notion, the illusion of privilege does actually interest me a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it fascinates you. It really does, yeah. doesn't it? And, and yeah. the, the way people interact and uh, and how their, their surroundings affect them. Um, and yet in, inside they can be quite vulnerable, I Absolutely. suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. And feel lost and alone. Yes. Even though they on the surface look like they have these amazing lives. You've written a lot of books, Emily, and am I right? Is it five novels in five years? Would that be it right? Is five novels in five years. That's yes. a lot. How that do sounds you do quite it? exhausting when you say that. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, sometimes I kind of go, it's not so much how I do it as why I do it. Um, <laughs> commercial publishing is a grueling schedule. I mean, once upon a time, a book every two years was normal. 
I remember interviewing, do you remember Alexander McCall Smith? The wonderful man, he writes the um, the number one ladies detective agency where his oh, real yes, big yes, hit. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and I loved, he was one of, I loved interviewing him. He was an absolutely gorgeous person, but he is a gorgeous person. Uh, I remember him saying to me that when he told his publishers that he wanted to produce a book every year, they went, no, 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 whoa, like slow down. You will flood the market. Nobody wants a book a year from you. That's going back now, like, I don't know, 15 years or so. The schedule now is a book a year. I also know there are writers who produce a book, a novel every six months. Mm. So in a way that kind of, you know, fevered demand, the now, now, now consumer model has like trickled over into publishing. And it's kind of normal in commercial publishing to produce a book a year. I don't know if I'll keep doing it. It is, you know, can you produce a good book every year? I presume you would have, you know, one that you're writing, one that you're planning, one that you're editing. Is that the way it works? Not really for me. I find that I am, I, when I'm in a book, I'm in a book and I can't seem to, I mean, I can be thinking about the, the next book, but if I start writing the next book while I'm still with the process of the first one, I just end up rewriting the first one. And I find then that I just, you know, when I get properly into the next one, I have to go back and scrap all that stuff. So no, I tend to finish one fully and then start another, mm -hmm. which means that realistically, I'm not writing a book in a year. I'm writing it in six months because, you know, that's kind of how it ends up. How do you fit it all in with, because you, you're you married, you've got uh, three children, am yeah. I right? And what kind of ages are they? So the oldest is now 17, mm -hmm. which is astonishing. Um, <laughs> and then I have a 13-year-old and I have a nine-year-old, my daughter, who will be 10 in a week. So they're not tiny anymore. And that makes a massive difference, obviously. I mean, oh my God, the years of very small children are, they, those years eat themselves. <laughs> there is very, like, you just have to somehow hang on. You just cling on and you do what you can do. And, um, you know, mostly what I did was mind very small children. But they get a bit older and you have structure they go to school and mm -hmm. you have, you know that you have every day until 20 past two, which is amazing. Um, also, like I have an amazing husband. I have a husband who is, he is, I mean, he is the love of his children's life, which is just amazing and beautiful mm -hmm. and the love of my life as mm -hmm. well, of course. But he is brilliant with them and he, you know, he works freelance as well, which means that his hours often align and he will do all sorts of stuff, like picking them up, driving them to their after-school activities, which I resent doing. Um, <laughs> I resent the time away from my desk and I resent the up and down to different this and that. Um, you know, he's I couldn't do any of it without him. I absolutely couldn't. And, you know, I like working. I really do. And I suspect that if I had to work less hard, I would be much less happy. I don't know. Maybe mm. I'm just... Falling in love with my chains. Isn't that what we all do? <laughs> you know, it's like we put a positive spin on our lives yeah. and we go, no, 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 I'm happy like this. Well, it sounds as if you've got a good partnership going with yeah. your husband and also a lot of support from him. And that yeah. has to. It has, has to. to be yeah. a huge bonus. Absolutely. A huge bonus. Yeah. I mean, it would literally be impossible mm -hmm. when he's flat out with work as he is obviously occasionally. I just can't, you know, the invisible things that he does that make my life easier are no are there in front of me, visible, and I realize that it's actually impossible without him. 
Around the time that you started on this uh, novel a year for five years, you also uh, became very ill. It was cancer. It was cancer and I was diagnosed. So I wrote my first novel, The Privilege, that we were just talking about. And as luck would have it, and it is luck, I had finished that book. My publisher's Hachette, who were, you know, they were then my new publishers, had said that they wanted it. I had signed a contract with them and I had done the first big edit, which is the hard thing. And all of those things were done. And then I was diagnosed. So actually, literally, like exactly five years ago now, I was diagnosed with mouth cancer, um, stage three. And that was December of 2015. Mm -hmm. And I then went into a very short very brutal treatment. So, I mean, cancer is this big catch-all word, and obviously cancer means something different for every individual person. For me, what it meant was, firstly, it was a viral cancer. So it was caused by the HPV virus, which is also the virus that causes cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. and they believe may cause other cancers. There's research ongoing into that, Um, For all of those reasons, I would always say anybody offered the HPV vaccine should certainly consider using the best available information to inform themselves about the reasons why that vaccine is on offer and why it is, I think, a good idea. Um, But so, you know, that was my, the fact that it was a viral cancer and also, you know, considerations of the fact that I was quite young when it happened, all of these things meant that I was told that this cancer was very treatable but that the treatment was very, very, very very horrible. Yes. So it was like, okay, on the one hand, the good news Mm. is that this is a very treatable cancer. The bad news is that the treatment is really nasty. So the treatment, I mean, when I say it now, it just seems, it was such a big deal in my life. And when I go back and go, it was, was it a seven week treatment, I think? Or an eight-week treatment. I'm like, what was all that fuss that I made about it? Like anyone can oh, do eight weeks. Oh, but Emily, I saw a photograph of you. Yeah, I saw horrible. a photograph of you when you were in the throes of it, and um, it it must have been horrific. I mean, even to to get your head around it, to to well, yeah. to, to know that this would be okay. Yeah. No, it was awful. Because you're, I suppose, you're careful of your health, having um, been through what you've been through, was COVID an issue for you or is COVID an issue for you? No, COVID hasn't been an issue for me in the slightest any more than it is for anyone else. I do not want to get it. It sounds deeply unpleasant and I will do all the things that are required not to get it, but it doesn't preoccupy me in any way. That said... You know, and I consider myself now to be a totally healthy person. But if I get something that I can't explain, if I get like a weird anything and I cannot immediately be told it's this, I completely and utterly panic. And I'm so fascinated. Is is it the right word? I'm so intrigued to see that that still happens to me. I mean, I went and sat in the A, the Royal Ear A&E for... I think it was about 10 hours by the time I was done, about this time last year, in fact, because I had this thing with my eye and it turned out to be something that is really quite common in people with short sight. I can't even remember what it's called now, Mm -hmm. Um, but I couldn't explain it. And my GP was just like, well, you know, I think you just go and get it checked out. And I sat there, I swear to God, for about, you know, eight hours thinking I have a tumour behind my eye and making plans for, you know, how will I manage this and who will take my children? I mean, 
It's, it sounds mad and we all laugh at hypochondria, but actually it's the manifestation of a terrible anxiety. Mm. So clearly somewhere, even though I think of myself 95% of the time as utterly 100% healthy, something like that happens and it shows me that I am rocked to the core in ways that I don't really quite have a handle on. Mm-hmm. And how was... Uh, the the spring, the summer, the autumn for you as a, well, probably as a writer, it didn't make a huge amount of difference because it's a solitary um, pursuit. But as a family dealing with COVID, was it well, okay? Well, I mean, when I think of homeschooling, I think I just want to put my head <laughs> in my hands and actually just lie on the table and say, please, God, I will never be required to do that again. (laughs) I mean, I didn't even do it. My husband did most of it. He is a man of infinite patience and I'm a person of almost no patience. And he was amazing, but it was horrific. It was just, I like, I just being all of us in the house all day. I like being on my own. I don't like being on my own all the time, but I like, you know, a good stretch of morning into middle afternoon on my own. I'm used to it. It's how I work. It's how I like to work. Having them all at home in their varying stages of their own response to it. You know, so the boys were okay. The older two. My daughter was furious with the whole thing. Furious about not being able to see her friends, not being able to do, you know, the different things that she likes to do. It was really like, I I didn't, I did not enjoy that in the slightest. When they went back to school, it was the greatest whoop and cheer of my life. (laughs) Um, Other than that, I mean, I think for like a lot of people, there was nothing particularly bad happening in the moment. And yet I definitely had a feeling of kind of gloom. Mm. The blues. The blues. Yeah, I can relate to that. Sporadically moments of feeling really upset about not being able to see my mother was really bothering me. Um, And then that whole, where does this end up? You know, is this how we now have to live? What's next for you now? Have you uh, another, well, you obviously have another novel in the pipeline. I do. I have another novel in the pipeline. So The Glorious Guinness Girls is part one. And The Guinness Wives, oh, which is the, the working title. So that is part two. So that picks up where The Glorious Guinness Girls leaves off. They are all married at the end of The Glorious Guinness Girls. The final wedding was Maureen, who got married in 1930. And that is the end of The Glorious Guinness Girls. The Guinness Wives now picks up in 1930. Okay, well, now it's 1930 and the last of the the three sisters has just gotten married. So now you're going to take them on a journey of uh, happy ever after, yes? Well, sadly, (laughs) not so happily ever after. So, no, those girls got married a lot. Eight marriages between three of them. So... The first marriages that they have all made at the end of the Glorious Guinness Girls, they didn't last. Two of those marriages were over by the mid-1930s, if not edging into the early 1930s. The third, Maureen's marriage, did last, very tempestuous, um, until her first husband was killed in the Second World War. Um, But so the the Guinness wives takes the story through the 1930s. So they are married, but those marriages are in difficulty and disintegrating in two of the cases. They're having children. So they're all having their first babies. Um, And against, again, it's very much the way their lives play out against the historical backdrop. So the 1930s was 
a terrible time economically in England. It was a time of massive unemployment. Uh, three million men unemployed, which at the time, I mean, that's, that's comparable with the 1980s. In fact, it outdoes the 1980s. Huge economic recession. Because of that, there is the rise, this kind of equal and opposite rise of communism on the one side and fascism on the other. So Oswald Mosley's black shirts are beginning to gain credence. And then there's this very interesting, for me, intersection between the lives of the Guinnesses and the Mitford sisters. So obviously the Nancy Mitford, Diana Mitford, etc. So Diana Mitford, who married Brian Guinness, a cousin, who is he? a cousin of the Guinnesses, and he's one of the big characters in The Glorious Guinness Girls. Um, they were married, and then Diana Mitford left him for Oswald Mosley, and they got married, and she had this whole kind of, you know, dalliance with Hitler and fascism, and, um, you know, by the side of Mosley, they were married in Germany. Um, were they married at Hitler's kind of, you know, his Austrian schloss? I can't remember. But so that is beginning to happen. And then there's communism on the other side. There's a whole load of marching through the streets. There are pitched battles in the streets of London between the communists and the fascists. And they then are, you know, leading out their private lives, the Guinness girls, against this. Mm. And... Again, for me, just this fascinating intersection of real-life privilege, private life, public happenings, all coming together. Emily, I cannot wait to read <laughs> this second instalment. I cannot wait. But before we finish, I would love if you would read a piece. And it's something that you have chosen yourself from a book that we haven't actually spoken about yet. But you did refer to... Um, your mother and the way she reared you and, you know, that, um, OK, she had a very nice social life in Brussels, but her main concern was uh, was mothering. And this is a book that you have written called How to Really Be a Mother. Yes. What brought you to write that? So that was my first book. And two things. One, this thing that we spoke about before, about the total immersion when children are small, for me anyway, there was nothing happening in my life or in my head except for children. I found motherhood astonishing, but also very overwhelming. Very, I mean, you know, I think in the book I describe it as like a rabbit out of a hat trick. I mean, nothing prepared me. No course, no book, no other person's experience <laughs> prepared me in any way for the process of being handed my first child and go, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Off you go now. There's a beautiful little boy. Go away, home Aren't you lucky? He's like, oh my gosh. I mean, so that was why I wanted to write a book. I wanted to, and I, I, I really wanted to write a book. I wanted to write a novel, but I didn't, I couldn't. I sat down and wrote the book that was in me, and it was a book about motherhood. It is not a book about bringing up children. I would never tell anyone how to bring up their children. It's a book about what happened to me when I became a mother and how I felt and, you know, the ways being a mother began to play off my recollections of having been a child and my recollections of my own mother and how she was a mother. So the bit that I chose to read um, is very much this notion of you become a mother and it brings back up all of these different things that I had forgotten. I had completely kind of, you know, they belong to my past, my childhood. And then suddenly they reemerge in this new form when you have children of your own. The fragments of our own childhoods, misremembered, half-remembered, forgotten but absorbed, 
inevitably color all our attempts to bring up children ourselves. They are the mood board of our psychology, the color references and material swatches we turn to when trying to assemble a coherent response to the startling rabbit from a hat trick that is having babies. My own background can seem a bit odd sometimes, but just as all dreams are really strange, everyone's childhood is extraordinary. So true. It's so true. Um, Emily, it's been a pleasure. I Thank really you. enjoyed this conversation. Uh, like I said, I cannot wait to read the sequel to the, the glorious uh, Guinness Girls. And I hope you get to take some time off over Christmas. I'd like to wish you and your family a really happy Christmas. Thank you so much. And to you, a really happy Christmas. In the glorious Guinness Girls, Emily brings us into a world that is enchanting on the surface, but quite dysfunctional and vacuous when you scratch beneath. There is no doubt that this world of debutantes and salons holds a kind of fascination for Emily. I can easily visualize the different scenarios, but then that world has a fascination for me too. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy.